electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Carter Worth, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, we've got yet another round of Total Request Fast Money. Send us your burning trading questions, and we will try and answer them on air live. Plus, we're fast-tracking the data to get a look at where the recovery may really be heading, what this chart could be telling us about what is in store. And we're awaiting comments from the president, expected to speak at the Rose Garden shortly. We will bring you his statements live. But first, let's talk about the market because we saw a rally into the close and we saw a notable underperformance of large cap technology and then also outperformance of value. Guy, what did you make of the action today? So you're sharp as a tack, Mel, and I know you remember everything. So you may recall yesterday's show, and you know, every once in a while something sort of sticks with you, like, you know, onion or something like that. Well, yesterday <laughs> Bonowin said something on the show that really resonated with me. We were talking about the VIX, and he correctly said, you know, just because you have an elevated VIX, it's not by definition a negative thing for the broader market. And, you know, today illustrates the point he was making exactly. I'm shocked by today's performance because... By all historical norms, the reversals we saw yesterday should have followed through today. You know, maybe that happens tomorrow. I don't know. But what I make of it is the resilience of this market continues to be unprecedented, in my opinion. And you have a couple comments out of Brainerd. And here we go off to the races once again. Still label me a skeptic. All right. uh, Let's uh, pause this conversation. We do have some breaking news from Moderna. The stock is up in the after-hour session. Let's get to Meg Terrell with all the details. Meg. Hey, Melissa. This is the much-awaited phase one study of Moderna's uh, COVID-19 vaccine program. Uh, This is the full results being published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a study of 45 healthy people between ages 18 and 55. uh, And what they showed are that the neutralizing antibodies the vaccine generated, uh, they generated that in all of the participants. And the dose level that they're taking forward into phase three, that's the 100 microgram dose, uh, they found that these neutralizing antibodies were at levels about two to four times higher what you would see in patients who have recovered from the disease. Neutralizing antibodies are so important because those are the antibodies that actually block the virus from being able to infect cells. Now, it's important to put this into context. We have seen data from Pfizer and BioNTech, which is the same technology, going after COVID-19 with a vaccine as well. And this is fairly similar. Pfizer and BioNTech saw about two to three times higher neutralizing antibody levels. Uh, We talked with Moderna's chief uh, medical officer just before uh, coming on with you And um, he said that the results um, are about similar between the two vaccines. And he was encouraged by the Pfizer data and he is encouraged by the Moderna data. Of course, the question is going to become how long does this protection last? Uh, And we just don't know that. These uh, results were as of day 57. So they are going to start a phase three trial on July 27th of 30,000 participants. And that will give us the answer about how protective uh, this looks to be, Mel. Um, Meg, this, these are the full results of a study that had been sort of, um, I don't want to say alluded to, but summarized, high-level summary of the data, and this is the full results? Yeah, that's really good context. So on May 18th, Moderna's stock went crazy, up about 20%. As it result, it basically um, put out the top-line results, uh, and we didn't have any of the details. So critics argued it was very difficult to tell what we actually saw. Um, they only had data on eight of uh, the 45 patients worth of neutralizing antibodies. So this is the full 45, and it has uh, fuller results on uh, all of that and also on safety. And they did see, you know, some fever, some fatigue, some muscle pain um, in the trial, but nothing they said that would stop them from continuing and certainly nothing at that 100 microgram dose. 
All right. Meg, thank you for that. Meg Terrell with the latest on Moderna. Again, the stock is popping in the after-hour session on the back of these full phase one data up by 6%. Let's go straight to an analyst here for some more context on this and what it means for Moderna. Michael Yee, Managing Director at Jefferies, joined us. Uh, Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks for hopping on the phone. Um, how significant is this? Hey, Melissa, great to be here. Uh, look, I think the real key important takeaway for investors is this should further increase confidence that we are getting a robust immune response and that there should be greater confidence that this will be protective uh, to a degree uh, in transmission of COVID. So uh, this is all along our positive thesis and our view that both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech are definitely on a good track to get a vaccine by the end of the year. So the full readout of this data in, in these 45 individuals, and it seems staggering to me that, that all of the individuals produce neutralizing antibodies at this level of two to four times those who, who actually recovered from the virus. Um, does this prove further that, that the same technology that, that Pfizer and BioNTech are working on uh, may be even more valid? Absolutely. You know, there was a lot of skepticism both on the platform when this data first came out from Moderna a couple of months ago. And of course, they didn't result, uh, didn't report the full results. So there was definitely a lot of debate and controversy, as you recall. Uh, BioNTech Pfizer coming out with their data, which was very good. BioNTech traded up a lot on this. And we're validating that now with full published data of the details, which looks as good, if not slightly better than Pfizer-BioNTech's data. So we should feel good that these two platforms are looking very good. And there is more data to come, of course, from other vaccines. So I would uh, remind others about that as well. Does it look like this mRNA-based vaccine is going to cross the finish line in your view? And I know that's early, but things are, are being expedited these days <laughs> in terms yeah. of concurrence phases being conducted. Well, look, our confidence remains high. We initiated coverage, of course, on Monday morning uh, on this and ahead of this news. And we do remain confident that both Operation Warp Speed and this data, of course, uh, is going to support a vaccine that is effective and that meets the threshold for FDA and for the government to push this forward. Uh, obviously, there will be other ones as well coming through, uh, but it validates both an MRI platform so far, right, in these patients. And of course, when you get the phase three data, it's going to be thousands and thousands of patients, Melissa. So we should have a little more confidence after they do that. Is, Moder that, uh, is, is Moderna a buy? Moderna is a buy. We have a, a, a buy on a price target of 90 and we do think it's going to trade up into more of this and more data to come. Yep. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks. Michael nice. Yee of Jefferies. And we are seeing Moderna shares jump 10 percent. Dan Nathan, you know, there was a lot of criticism when they first offered these top line results. But here they are, the full result, results, and they are as good as people had hoped. Yeah, so here we are a couple months later from that time period. The stock had been very volatile. It ran up to that period in May and obviously um, had a huge spike in reversal. I think it's interesting to note that, you know, as of today's close, prior to this data coming out, the options market was implying about a 28% move between now and about a month from now. So it was just showing you the level of anxiety that investors or traders had um, about this data. And I think that's probably dating back to May 18th. It's worth noting, though, you, you kind of linked the data that we saw with the Pfizer drug. I mean, listen, I, I think that investors are getting um, a little bit more comfortable about the fact that we are going to have multiple vaccines available at some point in the future. I, I'm just not certain if you want to extrapolate this to what this means. Did the market rally into the close today because this data was leaked or in anticipation of good data? I just don't see tens and tens of millions of Americans taking a fast-track vaccine um, you know, it, that's done within six months for something that they just don't know what's going to happen, especially when we have tens of millions of Americans who won't wear a mask to avoid the spread of the disease. So to me, I just think it's like a little too soon to be extrapolating what this sort of phase one data on 45 patients means right now for our fight against the virus. Bono, in your take? You know, uh, you know, a guy talked about the VIX and to borrow an analogy from him yesterday, he mentioned horse racing and not necessarily knowing which one is going to come out in on front. I think it's positive for the overall market that we have a ton of players now pushing forward, racing for a vaccine. Who is going to come out ahead? We don't know, but I think it's overall um, a positive thing for the market. Absolutely. Carter Braxton Worth, how do these charts look? Well, talk about Moderna. What's interesting, of course, it, as Meg referred, it had that spike with the sort of pre-news, May 18th, up as high as 87. And here we have the official news, if you will, or the validated news. 
And yes, it's up in the night market here, but it's not even as high as it was on May 18th. So here we are, essentially two months later, the data is in, and yet the traders are right now not even pushing it higher than where it was um, on the 18th of May when the first news broke. But biotech in general, actually, I think we have a chart here. This is a great area of the market. Um, uptrends are fantastic, but when uptrends get too ahead of themselves, what gives them the next lag is if they pause. Now take a look at this chart of the IBB if we have it. From the lows of 09, basically IBB and the QQQ are even money. And yet QQQ is very stretched. The IBB spent the past four years consolidating and is just now breaking out. I mean, I think biotech as a theme, independent of which one, but in aggregate through an ETF like IBB is something that every portfolio should have. Guy, your quick thoughts as we watch Moderna up 11%. Yeah, first of all, it's amazing you got that analyst on because he initiated yesterday, I think, to your point, with a $90 price target. That's a great call by him. He should be proud of himself. And right now at 84, it looks like he's be spot on. I think 88 was a prior high. Um, I think you, if you've been long this stock, you might be able to ride it up to 90 without question. But to Carter's point, the way to play this entire space and something we've said now for months, if not the last year, continues to be IBB. Yeah, and we're watching, actually, 10% was an understatement. We're, we're edging up towards 15 right now uh, in the uh, post-market session, so we'll continue to watch that. Shares of Moderna, again, up about 15%. Um, let's get back to the broader markets here. I know you guys are watching this. Carter, what did you make of, of how the markets closed and what underperformed and what outperformed? Well, I mean, in a way, I suppose the biggest news of the day is to have the banks, or at least a few, come out with numbers and see no real movement. Uh, J.P. Morgan, of course, was best in class. Uh, Goldman was up a decent amount. But independent of the overall market, the, the, the banks are so important. They're the sort of the uh, you know, transmission mechanism for the whole economy. And uh, something's not quite right that they can't follow through. Uh, you know, I myself made a recent bet that they are going to come to life. But the whole notion of value growth, value has just been a perpetual dud at least as it relates to growth. And I don't know what really changes that. What about the energy space? What about uh, big, heavy financials? What about uh, materials, uh, industrials, that is likely to lead the market? There just isn't that prospect. We saw those signs of life in some of these value sectors, Carter, and, and Guy, I'll get to you on this. Industrials, materials, energy, all outperformers, while well, we had notable underperformance among some of the beloved big cap tech stocks, names like Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, all underperforming tech on a relative basis today, Guy. Are we going to look back yesterday and say that was the start of either a consolidation period for, for big cap tech gains or the start of a rotation? Yeah, I think the answer is absolutely yes, and, and I'll stand by that, only because of the magnitude of the reversal and given the ridiculous, and I'll use that word, ridiculous move to the upside in so many of these stocks, they, they were historically stretched. And that, not casting aspersion on any one of those companies, just the magnitude of the move has been unprecedented. And with the reversal that you saw yesterday, uh, again, it's a historical reversal. I think it's only happened once before. So for me to sit here and say it's not a big deal would be disingenuous. I think we will look back in six months and say, that July, what was yesterday, the 13th, was a huge day in terms of uh, the reversal and the flow of funds in this market. So I'll stand by that for sure, Mel. Bonowin? Yeah, I think it's a start of, of a possible trend. However, I will overlay that with saying that, listen, we've seen volatility in the VIX, so vol-a-vol in the market, and we seem to see sentiment swing from left to right so quickly on the drop of the dime of any new news or any new development. So, yes, I can see it starting to be, um, you know, the beginning of a trend or, or a part, part of a rotation. But I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious before saying, like, this is the, this is the beginning here. Carter, I, got, I have to go to you. I mean, Chartmaster, <laughs> was, sure. was yesterday significant and was today follow-through? Oh, oh, sure, very much. I mean, in the sense that I think you're faced with two poor choices, unwelcome choices. You either, right, do value investing in its worse sense, I mean, almost dumpster diving, going down and finding a regional bank or a, a beaten up retailer, an energy name, an industrial whose outlook, uh, whose uh, sort of uh, logbook is shrinking, 
or you dance, right? Meaning the, the Chuck Prince chase the winners. Both are unwelcome. That's part of the problem for the market. Remember, there has been a call for value outperforming. Um, it's been going on since, uh, well, let me tell you this, and this is kind of fun. If you think about the only period where value really outperformed, and this would be from the dot-com peak down over the ensuing three years, sort of 99, 2000, 2003, it, value didn't do very well. It was flat. It's just that the denominator growth collapsed, right? Amazon lost 95% of its value. So it's not so much uh, value winning. It's just that value can maybe hold up an unch period when the steep ones are, are out of control. Dan? Uh, yeah, you know, I thought t yesterday was obviously very important. I thought the follow through today or the lack thereof. I mean, when you look at how mega cap tech created right after the opening, you know, Amazon was down 4%. Netflix was down 6%. I mean, these stocks were getting destroyed. Um, Tesla reversed and was down 10%. Um, the fact that they came back is obviously extremely bullish. And so the fever hasn't totally broken just yet, but that may be one step forward, two steps back with these names. And then to the point about what does the rotation look like? Well, cyclical tech, you know, semis uh, weren't as didn't get destroyed the same way that some of this high-priced software as a surface or some of these internet names did. So, you know, the move into some names like that might kind of indicate some sort of rotation. And then the last point I would just say is that if you look at the banks that were down today, they were the ones that reported. They acted pretty poorly. If you look at Citi and Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan outperformed. If you start to see that Q2 was maybe the worst of it, the highest loan loss reserves, the, high, the worst um, sort of numbers, then you might see a rotation into cheaper banks. Um, so the value trade might be a quarter or two. All right. Well, despite uh, the rally into the close, our next guest warns the summer correction is already underway. Mike Wilson is the chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, great to have you with us. Um, so you think we're about a month in, month plus in to this correction you're calling for? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that it's a, it's a major correction. I mean, but it started on June 8th, I think. Everybody knows that, uh, you know, the market peaked there, S&P 500. Uh, we had a big pullback in, in June. This is when the, the cyclical slash value stocks really underperformed. And uh, for good reason. You know, case count went up. There's concerns about, you know, Democratic sweep, uh, other election concerns, uh, all kinds of things that kind of weighed on the, the beta trade. Uh, and then we had this big rally back the last couple of weeks where we basically touched the old highs yesterday and got rejected. So... I think we're having a classic sort of, you know, zigzag correction this summer. Carter can opine on that. Um, I think it's not done yet. I think we all those concerns I just mentioned are still lingering in the background. You know, the COVID cases are still rising. We have an earnings season that's, that's going to be somewhat messy. You know, today the banks put up, you know, good numbers, generally speaking, except maybe for, for Wells. And the stocks didn't really do anything, right? So we have, have to, we have to consolidate some more. The, the, the question that you all were asking a minute ago is the right one, though. Is there something more going on under the surface here? And I think it's been going on the whole time. So you know, people can talk about the growth stocks. They've done great. They have done great. I agree with that. We like growth stocks. But the other side of the barbell now is clearly cyclicals, okay? Those stocks have done extraordinarily well since March 23rd, which is when the market bottomed. You can't look at this from the year to date. Why? Because we're in a recession, and the, you have a new starting point. And the leadership is clearly cyclicals plus growth. The loser is defenses and sort of the really high-quality stocks that were working last year because you're at the end of a cycle. So I definitely think that the cyclicals can, out, can outperform growth even from here because they got more operating leverage and their expectations are still low. And we're, you know, we're bullish on the recovery, and we think this is a pause. This is not the end of the bull market. It's the beginning of the bull market. It's just we, had, we got to such a fast start, we have to have a bit of a correction here. What makes you so bullish about the recovery, given the surge in cases in, in California, basically reinstituting uh, the, the, the lockdown measures that they had in March? Yeah, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, we don't think it's going to result in a national lockdown. Is there going to be a slowing of the reopening process? Yes, we're already seeing that. But generally speaking, the reopening will continue. And by the way, you know, good parts of the country, including the New York area, are doing well with the reopening, you know, slowly. And I think, you know, we're learning as we go. And my guess is we're going to continue to make progress on that. Obviously, vaccines are part of that discussion as well. And I just think the economic impact of the virus itself is behind us. The market's looking forward. And look, stocks are long-duration assets. 2020 is a write-off year. 2021 is going to be a much better year, and it will be really better, much better if you get a vaccine earlier than people expect. And that's kind of our view, is that we're just going to climb the wall of worry on, on the virus. 
You are expecting new highs after the election. So I'm wondering uh, in that call, what does the leadership of the market look like to get to those new highs? Yeah, I think it's what I was just talking about a minute ago, Melissa, which is it's going to be a combination of some of the former leaders. um, And I would call that gross stocks at a reasonable price. Um, You know, Guy mentioned it earlier, ridiculous performance. Well, some of the valuations are ridiculous on some of these stocks. It's, It's unarguable. But there are some wonderful growth companies that are trading at, at fine valuations. They need to grow into those, and they will. So that's on one side, and, and so some of those stocks will continue to lead that have been leading. And then you're going to get this new cohort of the cyclical stocks that have been left behind, not just for the last year or two, but for the better part of a decade, whether that be the banks, whether that be some of the materials names, uh, maybe some of the energy stocks, industrials. And a lot of that could be driven by an election outcome where you get infrastructure spend, which I think there is bipartisan support, and there's going to be more fiscal. We know that already, probably coming out next month. Mike, we got to go. Thanks so much for phoning in. Always good to hear from you. Thank you, Melissa. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Uh, Bono, when you agree with, well, this notion of a V-shaped recovery and being positioned in cyclicals in preparation for it. Um, I'm going to hold back on V, more U or Nike swoosh type of um, recovery. Listen, you know, at the end of the day, as we've said, the, the value play or values underperforming has kind of been a trend for a while. And it's been quite a, people, quite a bit of people pounding the table saying that, listen, there needs to be this rotation out of uh, mega cap tech into value, into cyclicals. But I'll tell you this, until there's a bit more clear cut uh, answer to, to this COVID crisis, until like the volatility of the market calms down, people are going to continue to look for fortress-like balance sheet and free cash flow generation. And I, and I stand by that. By so the, I think it'll be a bit more elongated. You've heard the banks come out and say similar things today as well. By the way, we are expecting President Trump uh, to speak in the Rose Garden shortly. He's expected to make some comments on China. So as soon as he comes up, you see a live picture there, we will go to it. Uh, but Guy, back to the markets in the meantime. Uh, what, do you, what do you like of what Mike Wilson said? Or maybe nothing. <laughs> No, listen, Mike Wilson does extraordinarily thoughtful work, without question. When he says things, I absolutely listen. Uh, you know, there's that Led Zeppelin song. I'm sure you're familiar with it, Mel. It's off their final studio album, In Through the Outdoor, All of My Love. And one of the lines is, one voice is clear above the din, and Mike is one of those voices. So I respect what he's saying. I just don't necessarily agree with that bullish thesis. I do think the market is expensive, and I absolutely do think the reversals we saw yesterday technically did a lot of damage. Now, today sort of mitigates that, I understand. But there are a lot of things that happened yesterday that I think, to your earlier point, we're going to be talking about in the weeks and months to come. Do you see new highs, Carter, in the markets after the elections? You know, that, I think that's a stretch. One of the things about a V, the market is saying V, but the data as of now is not. If you just looked at a couple of things, I mean, consumer confidence in the March-April period dropped 30 points. It's up six points. I mean, industrial production dropped 16, 17 percent. It's up one and a half from the low. Or, or EPS revisions, they were down some 25 percent in March and April. Now maybe they're up three or four. We don't have that in the data yet. Certainly the, the news out of the banks today in terms of almost record provisions, that's not the kind of thing that happens if you're really all clear. And of course, the big wild card or one wild card to factor into the markets uh, is the heightened tensions between the U.S. and China. And that's why we are awaiting President Trump's comments regarding China, Dan. I mean, it's not just trade. It's also Mike Pompeo yesterday saying that China did not have a right to claim resources in the South China Sea, which, of course, China says it does have a right to do so. So you have this ongoing back and forth rhetoric, which all contribute to, to heightened tensions. Yeah, I mean, listen, you guys have heard me say this before. I've thought this for a long time now. Um, I don't think the Trump administration's policy towards China, while I think that it's bipartisan that we all agree that we need to take them on, we are very much in a cold war with them. And, and, and on a tech front, we're in a bit of a hot war. And there's lots of examples that I can point to. So, um, you know, increased tension with China just means headwinds to global growth. We know that we're seeing deglobalization. We're seeing it for like probably pretty decent reasons right now, like reshoring some of our manufacturing, that sort of stuff. But if this sort of sanction tit for tat results in a rollback of some of the tariffs or, or are actually put forward of more tariffs, then we know who pays for that. U.S. consumers pay for that. Manufacturers pay for that. Farmers pay for that. And I just don't think at this point where we are with our economy, it makes a whole 
heck of a lot of sense. And I just want to make one other point. You know, I think, again, looking at the state of the recovery through the lens of the stock market is a big mistake right here. If you just look at what has happened in the economy just in the last four months, we had that that March-April period where it looked disastrous, and then we had that May-June period where it looked less bad, our economy is probably pretty scarred for the next couple years or so. We are going to have structural unemployment. We are going to have the, the bigger going to continue to get bigger here. So to me, I just think that you know when we think about the back half of this year, um, it's not going to look like a V. I think what Bonoan said, it's a U. That would be optimistic. It looks maybe more like a swoosh. But I suspect, you know, after the financial crisis, remember we heard all about that double dip, we may get a double dip. You know why? We front end loaded all of that fiscal, all of that monetary stimulus. At some point, someone's going to say, hey, listen, enough is enough. We can't continue just to throw trillions at this without making structural changes. All right. As we await the president, let's check in with Kayla Tausche in Washington with what to expect. Kayla. Melissa, we're expecting the president to make remarks on China. Unclear if he will take questions from reporters at this event in the Rose Garden. The White House hasn't given an official reason for this uh, fairly last-minute press conference that the president uh, has announced. But we know a couple of things about some deadlines that await the president. On July 2nd, Congress sent to the White House the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, uh, which was passed unanimously by both chambers and would impose sanctions on entities in Beijing that are seen in violation of Hong Kong's autonomy. This is in response to that controversial national security law that Beijing uh, pressed forth with in Hong Kong. The White House has 10 days for the president to sign that, excluding Sunday. So today is the last day of that deadline for the president to sign that law. If he chose not to sign it, he would face a uh, veto override uh, in the in members of Congress because support for this legislation is so high. Peter Navarro, speaking with reporters on Sunday, said he expected the president to sign that bill into law this week and also to finish what he started in the Rose Garden in May. You may remember, Melissa, in May, the president had a similar event in the Rose Garden where he criticized China for uh, the op- opacity uh, that many of its companies operate with uh, that goes directly against the transparency that many American companies do. He, he uh, asked some of the financial regulators to look into what could be done there. And he also said that uh, he was going to be instructing agencies to revoke the special status of Hong Kong uh, because of this national security law. So Peter Navarro has said in recent days that the president is going to be moving forward with those policies. And we know that the deadline for this legislation to be signed is today. So that is what we expect the president to do at this event. Kayla, what are you hearing from Washington or China watchers as to what the retaliation could be on on China's part if the president does this? Well, all of these actions have been well telegraphed, Mm -hmm. and there are are communications that are happening behind the scenes. So uh, the hard lines on both sides have been escalating in recent weeks. Uh, We have seen China threaten sanctions on certain U.S. companies uh, in China, defense contractors specifically in recent days. That's what they've been talking about. Uh, But as far as specific actions, we'll see what the president says. You know, China has been reticent to actually announce what it is going to do before it sees what the president comes out and says, and exactly what the teeth of some of these policy documents look like, because sometimes the bark is bigger than the bite, uh, and they don't want to speak out of turn if that continues to be the case. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. And again, we are expecting President Trump to make some comments from the Rose Garden on China. As soon as he gets to that podium, we will bring uh, you to him. Meantime, coming up, it was a dour day for Delta as the company reported its biggest loss ever. We will dive into those numbers. Stay tuned. You're watching Fast. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Let's go to the White House and listen to the president. Vaccines, but we're going to go over quite a bit, and maybe at the end we'll take some questions if we have time. It's not too hot. Today I signed legislation 
and an executive order to hold China accountable for its oppressive actions against the people of Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which I signed this afternoon, passed unanimously through Congress. This law gives my administration powerful new tools to hold responsible the individuals and the entities involved in extinguishing Hong Kong's freedom. We've all watched what happened. Not a good situation. Their freedom's been taken away. Their rights have been taken away. And with it goes Hong Kong, in my opinion, because it will no longer be able to compete with free markets. A lot of people will be leaving Hong Kong, I suspect. And we're going to do a lot more business because of it, because we just lost one competitor. It's the way it is. We lost a very, very serious competitor, a competitor that we incentivized to take a lot of business and do well. And uh, we gave them a lot of business by doing what we did. We gave them things that nobody else had the right to do. And that gave them a big edge over other markets. And because of that edge, uh, they've done really historic business, tremendous business, far bigger than anybody would have thought years ago when we did this uh, gift. We, it was really a gift to freedom. Today, I also signed an executive order ending U.S. preferential treatment for Hong Kong. Hong Kong will now be treated the same as mainland China. No special privileges, no special economic treatment, and no export of sensitive technologies. In addition to that, as you know, we're placing massive tariffs and have placed very large tariffs on China. First time that's ever happened to China. Billions of dollars have been paid to the United States, of which I've given quite a bit to the farmers and ranchers of our country because they were targeted. And that's been going on for three years. It's the first time anybody's ever done anything like that. And prior to the plague pouring in from China, they were having the worst years, you know, in 67 years. And I don't want them to have a bad year. I want them to have a good year. But they were taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. And that's uh, stopping. But then the, then the virus came in and... Uh, the world is a different place, but we're now getting back. And one of the reasons the market's doing so, it's almost at the point that it was at prior to the plague. Almost. We're getting very close. It's a great thing. It's an amazing thing what our people have done and what they've endured. No administration has been tougher on China than this administration. We imposed historic tariffs. We stood up to China's intellectual property theft at a level that nobody's ever come close. We confronted untrustworthy Chinese technology and telecom providers. We convinced many countries, many countries, and I did this myself for the most part, not to use Huawei because we think it's an unsafe security risk. It's a big security risk. I talked many countries out of using it. If they want to do business with us, they can't use it. Just today, I believe that UK announced that uh, they're not going to be using it. And that was up in the air for a long time, but they've decided. And you look at Italy, you look at many other countries. We withdrew from the Chinese-dominated WHO, and we fully rebuilt the United States military, the WHO, World Health Organization. Uh, we were paying close to $500 million a year. China was paying $39 million a year. And uh, China had too much say. They worked it very hard, which is a uh, bad thing done by our past administrations. But we were tough, and we were saying — I was asking, I said, why are we paying so much more than China? China has 1.4 billion people. We have 325. Probably 325 million, approximately. Nobody can give the exact count. We're trying to get an exact count. But you have, over the years, many illegals who have come into the country. So it depends on how you want to count it. But you could say 325 to 350 million people, as opposed to 1.4 billion people. And the world, tra world trade is terrible. That deal is terrible. The world health is terrible deal. We've been very tough on the World Trade Organization, and we've been, uh, I guess, as tough as you can get on World Health. We withdrew our money. We told them we're getting out. 
Doesn't mean that someday we won't go back in. Maybe we will when it's correctly run. But they made a lot of bad predictions and they said a lot of bad things about what to do and how to do it. And they turned out to be wrong. And they were really a puppet of China. And make no mistake, we hold China fully responsible for concealing the virus and unleashing it upon the world. They could have stopped it. They should have stopped it. Would have been very easy to do at the source when it happened. In contrast, Joe Biden's entire career has been a gift to the Chinese Communist Party and to the calamity of, of errors that they've made. They made so many errors. And it's been devastating for the American worker. China has taken out hundreds of billions of dollars a year from our country, and we rebuilt China. I give them all the credit in the world. I don't give the credit for the people that used to stand here because they allowed this to happen where hundreds of billions of dollars were taken out of the United States Treasury in order to rebuild China. There's no company and no country in the world, no country in the world has ever ripped off the United States like the incredible job that they did on this country and the people that ran it. Possibly it's one of the reasons, certainly it's one of the very big reasons, trade and things related to trade, that I got elected in the first place. I've been talking about it for a long time, along with many other subjects, frankly. Joe Biden supported China's entry into the World Trade Organization, one of the greatest geopolitical and economic disasters in world history. Uh, if you look at China, you look at the moment they joined the World Trade, they were flatlining for years and years and years and decades. And then all of a sudden, they joined the World Trade Organization, and they went like a rocket ship. They were given all sorts of advantages. They were considered a developing country. As a developing country, they got tremendous advantages over the United States and other countries. And they took advantage of those advantages and, and then some. Biden personally led the effort to give China permanent most favored nation status, which is a tremendous advantage for a country to have. Few countries have it, but the United States doesn't have it. Never did, probably never even asked for it because they didn't know what they were doing. As Vice President Biden was a leading advocate of the Paris Climate Accord, which was unbelievably expensive to our country, would have crushed American manufacturers while allowing China to pollute, pollute the atmosphere with impunity. Yet one more gift from Biden to the Chinese Communist Party. They took all of the advantage away from us. They took everything away. We've been listening to President Trump making comments from the Rose Garden on China. As expected, he signed the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. Let's get to Kayla Tausche for more on what the president has said so far. Kayla. Melissa, the president is doing exactly what we expected him to do. He has announced that he has signed the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which places sanctions on uh, entities in Beijing for cracking down on uh, on uh, demonstrations in Hong Kong. And he has also announced that he is uh, putting out an executive order that would fully revoke the special status of Hong Kong and that uh, for economic purposes, Hong Kong would be treated the exact same as mainland China. This is something the administration telegraphed that it would do at the end of May. Since then, relations with China have further eroded with President Trump saying that the phase one trade deal is in but he has no interest, according to an interview he did with CBS News today, he has no interest in having phase two discussions because of what China did uh, with the virus that it plagued the world with. Uh, so certainly the administration is cracking down on China, taking an even harder line than it did before. But Melissa, as I said before, until we see the exact text of this executive order, which I expect the White House to publish this evening, uh, it's unclear exactly when this would take effect, what exactly it would do, uh, and uh, which agencies would have the jurisdiction here. And then, in turn, how China would respond to that. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Let's get some reaction to uh, the latest developments. Let's bring in former deputy director of the National Economic Council, Cleet Williams. Cleet, great to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, given, given what has transpired this afternoon, can you sort of 
give us a grade on, on how the U.S.-China relationship is compared to, say, six months ago? Well, the U.S.-China relationship has really been on a downward spiral uh, for quite some time. And I think if you look back six months ago, we were in a position where we were signing the phase one deal. But even as that was happening, there were a lot of different things um, going on behind the scenes that were already starting a technology decoupling and were already in some respects starting a financial decoupling. So I, I don't think things are dramatically different but I do think that they have accelerated in, in a very negative direction here, and, and that's more of what you're seeing today. There have been a number of uh, potential measures taken that could impact publicly traded companies. For instance, the Trump administration indicating that it would uh, scrap a 2013 agreement in which Chinese and U.S. Uh, accounting officials would, would basically um, s- swap uh, papers so that each can audit companies listed in those countries. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, from a financial markets perspective, Cleet, what is the most troubling in your view in terms of the developments that have happening have been happening in, in the deterioration of this relationship? Well, if you look at the financial markets, I think um, that 2013 MOU honestly isn't all that significant mm-hmm. because China hasn't been following it anyway. They haven't been letting our regulators audit the financial records of their companies. And so just scrapping that, I don't think it's going to make a big difference. And, and I do think that the administration is right to go after this issue of access to audits. But what is troubling to me is the next part of that, that issue, and that there are folks in Congress, there are folks in the White House who are basically saying any investment flows into China are problematic because they contribute to China's military-civilian complex, and therefore any money going to a Chinese company ultimately builds up the Chinese military. Mm. And if that is your view, then no financial flows between our, com- our countries are really acceptable. And so that, to me, is much more troubling. I'm not as worried about the audit stuff, because I think it's appropriate, and it's really about providing greater disclosure to our investors. But when you start saying any financial flows between us are a problem, I think that's a totally different ballgame. Cleet, thanks for your input. We appreciate it. Cleet Williams joining us on the phone. Um, Guy Dami, it sounds like a, a wall is being built between China and the U.S. in terms of those financial flows. Yeah, without question. This is something we've said on the show for quite some time, that the rhetoric between the United States and the Chinese is only going to get worse. The mistake that I've made is I thought it would be extraordinarily negative for the market. The market, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to care. I think the market should take notice um, because this is going to get ramped up. And I'm hard-pressed to believe you're not going to see some statement out of the Chinese within the next uh, six to eight hours, quite frankly, because there will be some sort of, I I would imagine, rhetoric retaliation. And it's just going to continue. Again, President Trump is probably 100 percent correct to go after the Chinese and to to draw a line in the sand. With that said, it has severe ramifications for the market. I think he looks at our stock market and says, and he mentioned it earlier, with with a whisper of an all-time high, I think in his mind he has some chips he can play with in terms of the rhetoric, and I think that is why the VIX is probably going to stay around the 30 level. I mean, you know, what Cleet said was really interesting. In the past six months, the relationship has been on a downward spiral. But in the past six months, the markets have recovered big time from from the March 23rd lows, Carter. And so, um, you know, it's it almost is like the market is completely inured to every one of these developments at this point. It doesn't matter what Beijing says because they they say it all. They say butt out of our our business. And yet the markets continue to go higher. Right. I mean, I think because it's all it's all about the Fed, right? The, you throw this kind of money. Everyone knows what the M1 index is doing. It's it's almost a record spike uh, at any short time frame. And uh, the, there's an expression: the fix is in. I mean, if you, if you just helicopter money, literally, uh, that creates uh, the kind of moves we've seen in some of these stocks, both beaten down names bouncing as well as steep, uh, uncorrected names surging. But nothing, no tricks last forever. All right. Coming up, it's been a bloodbath in the big banks today as earnings season kicks off. We'll break down what is ahead for these names next. Much more Fast Money in two.
I think bank balance sheets and loan quality, frankly, is as strong as it's ever been going into a downturn in a cycle. Certainly much better, not just for us, but across the board among larger banks versus uh, the, uh, the prior crisis. So for each of us, it's a little bit different. That was Wells Fargo CFO John Shrewsbury in closing bell earlier today, saying the company's balance sheet is strong, but the stock fell hard today to kick off bank earnings. Wells, along with J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, all increasing their loan loss reserves more than expected during the quarter due to the coronavirus pandemic. Bank of America will put out its numbers Thursday. For more on today's reports and what's still to come, let's bring in Gerard Cassidy, head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC. Gerard, great to have you back. Thank you. The stocks didn't do so well. I mean, Citi's and J.P. Morgan's results looked fine on the surface. I'm just wondering what what you think was behind the uh, the underperformance. I think one of the drivers behind today's numbers was the fantastic capital markets numbers that a J.P. Morgan put up, and then Citigroup's numbers were very good as well. But as you as we all know. The capital market numbers can be volatile, and so we cannot forecast out an elevated level of capital markets in the third and fourth quarters compared to the second quarter. So I think when investors took a look at the core commercial banking numbers, which were mediocre to okay, they realized that, boy, you know, the capital markets are generally softer in the summertime, which is third quarter, and then the holiday season affects them in the fourth quarter. So I think that was maybe weighing on investors' minds that they were real good this quarter, capital markets, but they're not sustainable at these levels. Uh, in, in terms of what else you saw in the, I mean, credit was a, a concern. So I'm wondering, Gerard, if you think that will be um, an, an issue, especially as the banks put yeah. aside more money for potentially bad loans than had been expected yeah. on the street. You're absolutely right. Credit is the provisions, as you pointed out, were very, very high. Uh, J.P. Morgan's was about in line with the expectations, but still gigantic at $10 billion. Citigroup's was about in line. Wells Fargo was much greater than expected. But here's the dilemma for the banks, is that under the new accounting rules, they're all setting aside this money for future losses. And the future losses are highly dependent upon one view of the economy. And because of the uncertain situation we're in, I think investors still don't have a really good grasp on whether the recovery is going to be more V-shaped or like a Nike swoosh, or do we go into a W where it's an actual recession. And until investors get a better understanding of that, I think it's going to weigh on their bank stocks because of the credit situation. Gerard, I look at Wells Fargo, for example, they, and I'm not looking to pick on Wells Fargo, but I'll mention them. The tangible book, according to them, was $31.88. Here we are trading with a 24 handle. You know, these are discounted tangible books like we haven't seen probably in the last 12 years. What is that telling you? You're bringing up a really good point with the discounted tangible book value per share, and it's telling us that there is still challenges ahead for Wells Fargo. They're unfortunately uniquely positioned to feel the most pain on a go-forward basis because of the asset cap. We know that because of the cease and desist order that was issued back in, I believe, 2017, they have had their balance sheet frozen. And here's the challenge. The low interest rate environment is putting pressure on spreads and margins. J.P. Morgan, Citi, B of A, others can grow their balance sheet partially offset that compression. Wells cannot. So the compression is like a vice. They're seeing their revenues fall, and at the same time, credit costs are rising, operating expenses are elevated, so they are in the worst position of the big banks at the present time. And that shows up in the price to tangible book value. Investors are concerned about that. Gerard, thank you. Always good to speak thank with you. Thank you so much for listening. Gerard Cassidy thank you. of RBC. Bonwin, your take on the banks. Listen, I, I mentioned it yesterday. I really think it, what you're seeing is a differentiation between those that have robust trading and fee-generating um, 
assets under their umbrella, vertically integrated, well-diversified, multinational banks vis-a-vis those that have a core commercial banking or retail banking arm. I mean, it's really that simple. J.P. Morgan has set themselves aside. I would set themselves apart. I would assume City has to an extent. I would assume the same with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley on a go-forward basis. You know, and let's all be clear. There was a lot of headline risk already with Wells Fargo, as Guy and many of the others have pointed out previously. So I think you're going to continue to see that trend. Dan, quick on banks. Yeah, I think the guy's point about valuation, uh, discount to book, you're seeing it in the money centers like Citibank and Bank America. You will have a shot to buy them lower. And at some point, maybe late Q3, they look like that great opportunity to buy them for a massive run as we go into 2021 and the economy is better. All right, let's get to options action now. Uh, Bono, when we go to you for, for this, United Health is what you're watching. So I'm taking a look at the... Um the uh, option sales on it. Calls outweigh puts about two to one. We've seen, though, that, that open interest is about in line. So I, I want to make that point. Um, and if you take a look out to the uh, weekly expiration at the money straddle, the straddles are implying about a 4% move in either direction between now and then. And that's in line, unlike some of the other names, in line with what we've seen over the last four quarters. Uh, what I really want to point out to you is what I saw was a seller of about 14 or 1500 of the August 28th expiry 270 puts. And those traded, um, let me check my notes, around $5.36. So that's putting about a 13% downside protection in there for you. I will add that we also saw a bit of um, short-term call buying as well. And the stock has been up 3% the last two days. So definitely a bullish trend going into earnings. All right. And of course, earnings out tomorrow morning. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Tonight on Mad Money, Jim is sitting down with the CEOs of Livongo and Paychex at 6 p.m. Eastern. But don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Moderna holding on to the big gains in the after-hour session of 15.3% after releasing the full results for its phase one coronavirus vaccine uh, trial in humans. Uh, and those positive results putting the bid on the reopening trade. In fact, take a look in the after-hour session at the move that we're seeing in airlines and cruise lines, travel stocks. They are all jumping on news, this positive news of this uh, coronavirus vaccine. Guy Adami. Looks like this is a reignited this trade. Reignited. Uh, that's a great word. It's as opposed to reunited by that song. I think it was Peaches and Herb. But again, as usual, I digress. You know, I go something back to something Jeff Mills said last night, you know, in terms of chasing Pfizer. This is proof positive as to why you don't want to chase. I'm more inclined, to be honest with you, to buy the weakness in Gilead to the extent that it's lower than to try to chase Moderna here because... Again, there are many, many chapters left in this book, and and I think you're going to have an opportunity to probably buy Moderna cheaper and to sell Gilead higher, if that makes sense to the people at home. This is all good news, though, Bonowin, for for the industries that need the vaccine so desperately in order to get people back. We're talking about Disney, which is up about 2 percent in the after hour session. You know, it is, but this is somewhat of a rerun. We've seen this show before. We've seen Carnival and RCL and some of the airlines. We've seen them all have pops. We've even seen pops in names like Hertz. So, you know, again, as I mentioned, sentiment seems to swing on the drop of a dime. Uh, buy the rumor, sell the news. All right, we'll see how, uh, how this all opens tomorrow. Time for the final trade now. Let's go around the horn. Dan Nathan. Yeah, guy's been all over the short dollar trade. I think you play it via UUP. I'm a seller of the UUP. Bono and Eisen. Cast a wide net towards the biotechs. Proceed with caution. IBB. Carter Braxton Worth. Silver long. I think it's the number one thing you can do. SLV. Hmm. Guy, you like that one. I sh- I'm sure of it. Can I tell you something? You know I dig Carter Braxton Worth, mm-hmm. man. He could read the phone book. And I would be a buyer of that because he is that smooth. You know what I'm saying? He's in the I know pantheon. You know what I'm saying. Pantheon, Parthenon. He's, 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 he's a top all he's of that. The, he's a, he's <laughs> right. He's in the Parthenon at the Pantheon. Freeport McMoran to Dan's point to Carter's point. FCX looks like it wants to continue to move higher. All right. Thank you so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at five for more Fast. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.